All right. Hello and welcome to the Reporter Roundtable on Impact 89 FM, the podcast that places student reporters from different news organizations around the Lansing area in conversation with one another to explain and discuss recent news events, stories they have covered, and their experiences as student journalists. I'm your host, Molly Wright, and you are listening to the Reporter Roundtable. Welcome. As a disclaimer in this episode, there are comments and references referring to the February 13th mass shooting that took place on Michigan State University's campus earlier this year. This is a sensitive topic being discussed and helpful resources can be found at capsmsu.edu. So here at Michigan State University, we are fortunate enough to have a lovely nature-centric campus filled with lots of trees. I don't know about you guys, but one of my favorite things about campus is seeing all the leaves change colors in the fall. Campus is always beautiful, but I think it's especially beautiful this time of the year. But what are some of the stories behind many of the trees on campus? And does climate change pose a threat to the intensity and longevity of beloved fall foliage? Today, I am here with two lovely reporters, Reese Carlson from the Great Lakes Echo, the environmental reporting news service we have here at Michigan State, and Tiana Barnes from Focal Point News, to discuss some of their recent news stories dealing with just those issues. How are you guys doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having us. I'm good. All right. Um, can you guys just start off by introducing yourselves a little bit, um, kind of telling us about the organizations that you work for? Okay. My name is Reese Carlson. Uh, I'm a journalism major. I'm a third-year student here at Michigan State, and I work for the Great Lakes Echo. This is my first semester with them, so I've only written two stories for them so far. But they are through the Knight Center at the School of Journalism here at Michigan State. It's focused on environmental reporting and things like that. I mean, both of the stories I've done so far are focused on leaves, which I guess is funny, but yeah. Yeah, awesome. And I'm Tiana Barnes. I'm a senior. I'm a broadcast journalism major, and I'm a part of Focal Point News, which is MSU's capstone news class. And it's really cool. It's for kids who want to get more experience with what it would be like working in a newsroom, possibly. So there's a producing side and a reporting side. This semester, I got to be a reporter, and I've done some pretty great stories, and I'm really happy I've gotten the chance to put out there. Okay. So today, I wanted to start out our discussion by talking about the different aspects of journalism, uh, since you guys both do different things. So what drew you to doing broadcast, Tiana, and then print for you, Reese? I've never really found myself to be much of a writer, which is weird because like even in broadcast, you still have to write. But um, I'm a very like extroverted person. So it's better for me. Like I feel like I strive being able to be, you know, on camera and, you know, the creative side of things. You know, writing a script is more conversational than writing in print. You can kind of write your script to be more what people would kind of talk like in their everyday life. Less like a little bit less formal than print, I feel like sometimes. Mm -hmm. So that just like is where I feel like I strive. So Reese, what drew you to the print aspect of journalism? I don't know, actually. I've always liked to write. I've grown up being a writer. Like as a kid, I would like write little stories and for my family and things like that. And it's what I'm better at, I guess. I've never really even tried broadcast. I don't know if I'd be good at it, but uh, writing is always what I've been drawn to. It's just something I can put out really easily. All right. Yeah, I guess. Can you guys go into kind of your individual processes when you have a story? How do you come up with the idea and then sourcing and things like that? How do you know it's a good interview or kind of what questions to ask? A lot of the times, especially with environmental, I go and look through like studies and things like that. Look out for recent studies that are happening with the Great Lakes Echo. They're specifically Great Lakes region. So I can look at like Wisconsin, Illinois, Mm -hmm. Indiana, Ohio. 
uh, Pennsylvania, New York. And I look through studies and things like that to see what's going on. I know some of my coworkers are working on things like the world's hottest chili pepper. So that's interesting. <laughs> and then I go and find experts. So I usually bother the people at the DNR. I go talk to them. I go bother MSU professors, U of M professors. Tiana, what about you? Pretty similar. I In Focal Point, we have like a day out of our week that we, you know, pitch our stories. So for the Memorial Trees story that I did, which we'll talk about later, um, that was actually a story that someone else had heard about the walk that was happening, the event that was happening. And um, so I, you know, did my research. I looked up who I needed to contact about it. And um, so I usually will contact that person, make sure they're okay with me coming and filming and then once I'm at an event it's pretty much a free-for-all like it honestly depends on the event like um you have to really read the room and feel it out and I just will have my camera out shooting all types of shots and just getting as much footage as I can without people kind of seeing me kind of being a fly on the wall because typically when people see with the camera they freak out and they start Mm -hmm. acting not so normal (laughs) like you know what I mean like I try to be a fly on the wall and then I find people who seem like good quote unquote characters for a story. So that's typically somebody who is high energy and um, is willing to be on camera because when you get people that don't really want to do it, it could go either way. And then I mic them up and I just will ask the same questions usually like what are we here for? Like what's going on? Asking how they feel about an event. And like if you're lucky, you get the really extroverted people who will like go off on different tangents and stories. Mm -hmm. And like I said, like story starts to write itself because when they go on their little story then you're able to bounce off of them and ask questions and a big part of my process is editing while I'm on like while I'm filming kind of in my head like when someone says something at that point I could have come in thinking that the story was going to go one way and then it goes a complete other because of what they said I'm like oh I should follow like go on this path so it honestly depends all right Tiana I'm gonna have you go into a little bit about your story. So can you just introduce it to us for those that haven't seen it? Um, Always a Spartan is the official title of the um, story, but um, at the time that I was writing it, I just called it the Memorial Trees Package. And basically what it's about is there are actually um, a certain number of trees spread throughout campus um, in various places, and um, they have these little plaques in front of them. And they're basically to memorialize the students who have passed away each school year. And it goes all the way up until, you know, the year of the shooting. And I'm sure they're going to continue to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, But so that particular day that I was filming, they were doing a an alumni sponsored um, walk so that family and friends could come and like go on this walk. And they would talk about each, you know, little tree and talk about they would name all of the students who were um, commemorated with that tree and people would get the opportunity to step up and talk about the person who had passed and like who they were here to remember and like they had flowers that you could leave for them and so it was really special to be able to witness and I learned that there's so many people who come every single year to see that tree that that honors their son or their daughter or like their friend and they really would talk about how the you know all of the students loved MSU so much and it's so nice that they're able to be a part of the campus after they unfortunately passed so early so it really just put things into perspective while I was doing the story because it was kind of like you're a part of the story while Mm -hmm. you're doing it almost especially when we passed by the tree commemorating um the shooting victims that was Mm -hmm. a little bit tricky yeah wow I was it was really difficult to do this story for me personally because I didn't want to seem insensitive to the mm-hmm. to the families that mm-hmm. were trying to grieve or trying to remember their family and friends. So I made that clear to the media person or the organizer when I talked to them. I'm like, 
I really want don't want to interfere. I don't, you know, I was very careful. Like I wouldn't want to be in anybody's way. You know, I, I really didn't want to change or alter the experience for them at all. And I got to know some of the parents there. Um, and that was really special because they were very kind to me, especially when, like I said, we got to the tree um, in front of Berkey Hall. Mm-hmm. It was a, it was very hard hearing, you know, just kind of reliving yeah. that day. And one of the parents noticed that I was kind of tearing up as I was filming, and they put their arm around me and was like, oh. "It's okay." And you know, that really just like told me, like, this is all this is what it's about, you know, like coming together as a community. And they don't know me; I'm just some random girl with a camera, but they recognize the gravity of the situation and that. Even as journalists and reporters, like we're still students and we still endured that day and like have our different experiences with it and, you know, still going through the motions and trying to heal from it. What suggestions do you have for people um, who are reporting on or with people who are grieving? Kind of how do you be sensitive to that? That is something that I'm still working on, you know, um, but I would say do your research, know what exactly the event that occurred was, know do your best to kind of try to get a feel for the type of people that you might be interviewing and what they may have gone through. Um, and I would even say sometimes I sometimes I have mixed feelings about when people, when you say, can I interview you? And people say, yeah, what kind of questions are you going to ask? Because you want their like raw and authentic mm-hmm. answer. Um, but I would say in those, in the situations where people may be grieving or maybe hurting, if you want to try to stay your, you know, stay in the green area of not, you know, stepping over any boundaries or hurting anybody, I would definitely brief them on like what kind of questions or at least um, ask them, is there anything that you want me to not touch on? Is there anything that you're not comfortable speaking on? Just to kind of try to make sure that they're comfortable and okay. You don't want them to suddenly, you know, shift mid-interview and you've overstepped a boundary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Reese, do you have anything to add or um, have experienced reporting on anything similar? I guess I hadn't really... I considered this, but I never really understood it, I guess, until the shooting, because I I went to the, the memorial and stuff at Spartan Statue, mm-hmm. and there was, like, reporters shoving cameras in my face. I never really considered that, because I'm always on the other side of it, and I was like, I do not want them taking my picture right now. This is so, yeah. like, strange, but no one was really asking. They were just taking pictures, because mm-hmm. it's a public event, and so I guess now that's enabled me to kind of step back and think about it more, and... Mm-hmm. I liked what you said a lot about uh, asking them what they don't want to talk about. That's a really great consideration to make. I don't know. You don't want them to like react negatively and they, they're uncomfortable. I, I totally relate to what you were saying about like being at the vigil. And I was talking to my professor about this and we had like a long conversation about, you know, these type of situations, how, you know, the people coming from Detroit, from Channel 4 and like all, coming from all over, they're being sent, you know. They're not just being like, oh, this tragic thing happened. I want to go exploit, exploit these children or like, you know what I mean? Like. Because then on the opposite side, I feel like a lot of people would be outraged if that happened or a big event mm-hmm. like that at our campus happened and nobody was talking about it. Mm-hmm. And, but I think a lot of people who aren't in the journalism field or like aren't knowledgeable of that mm-hmm. think of it as like they're trying to see, get a picture of me crying to put on the front page of something. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, and so in seeing my peers who aren't in journalism or aren't in the you know any type of like media, seeing their reactions to it and how it upset them so much that you know, the, the reporters were there. So that was the moment where I stepped back and was like, okay, like, how would I, how how do I, as a student, because, you know, I'm in Focal Point, we do a weekly broadcast for the most part, and we were trying to combat how do we do a show? We can't ignore what happened. How do we do a show without, you know, we're students, but a lot of students don't want to talk to us because mm-hmm. they're going through this thing and they're healing. So how do you walk that fine line? Yeah, for sure. Um, so 
going back to your story, I was wondering if you could take me back to kind of the day that you were reporting on it and kind of describe how that went for you. I know you mentioned earlier that it was like a walk throughout campus with a bus. So were you there the whole time? Yeah. So I arrived about 30 minutes before the rest of the friends and family and event organizers got there just to um, be able to get a feel for what was going to happen. I had never, like I said, I had never knew about the trees beforehand. So I just wanted to know, like, get a feel for the area without anybody watching me and um, get some footage of, you know, the tree, the first tree, because we started at a tree just across the street from the Spartan um, statue. And so I wanted to, you know, get shots of that, get establishing shots before anybody showed up and then once um the event organized event organizers showed up introduced myself um and you know like i said briefed them on the fact that i don't want to be in the way i don't want to you know negatively impact the situation for anyone and then it took me a while to get warmed up just because it was immediately intense i mean for obvious reasons you know like the first tree could be someone's son daughter family Mm -hmm. friend you know, they're, they're not going to wait till the fifth tree to be able to let those emotions out, you know, when they see it and they're hearing their name being spoken, like, obviously, emotions are going to come out. And, you know, I just felt so weird. I was thinking back to how people would, were talking about get a fan camera out of my face. I'm trying to, you know, have a private moment mm-hmm. and, you know, grieve. And um, but I what I figured out would be most helpful was without my camera, like in the spots between shots, introducing myself to some of the families and asking them who are you here for what you know like Mm -hmm. do you mind me asking like who passed and they would talk about them and I would say oh my like I'm so sorry for your loss I would definitely make sure to express you know that I'm I apologize for like the fact that they're grieving and that they lost someone um, close to them and I would allow them to tell me a little bit about the person and um, then ask them in some sort of way like if they would be willing to talk about them on camera and a lot of them were excited to talk about it a lot of them were very grateful that they were you know they seemed happy to talk about the students mm-hmm. so that was nice and um i met one of the a, a father and a mother and a father of a student who had passed that were so sweet to me and you know were kind of checking in on me throughout the um throughout the walk and that's actually the student who i included the pictures of him mm-hmm. when he was a kid with the msu um gear on and i you know the dad gave me his business card and stuff and like wanted to see the story after and I, that was how I got the pictures of his son after. So it was definitely a gradual kind of thing. By the end, I was more comfortable with a lot more of the parents and mm-hmm. they were more comfortable with the fact that I was filming. And it was an interesting process. While you were there, what was the response like from the families whose child um, were memorialized by the trees? Um, the energy of the day was, like you said, it was very sad. Um but it was also really that was the reason why I chose to take the story in the direction that I did, calling it always a Spartan, touching on the fact that, you know, this was a phrase that we used a lot after mm-hmm. the shooting and it was on the rock and it was everywhere and it was used to kind of bring our community together. But it was actually a phrase way before the shooting. It was it's on every single one of those plaques. Always a Spartan is on every single one of those plaques. And the organizer actually would say always a Spartan every single tree he would say that yeah every single tree he would say everyone's name and he would say always a spartan and it was just like so repetitive i was like okay this is this has to be the main focus of the story like what does this phrase mean to these people like why are they saying it so much so i would ask everybody you know what does always a spartan mean to you and i included in the story one of the mothers said that it means it's more said something like 
more than a school. It's a legacy. It's a, you know, it's a home. It's a place for, you know, all of that and that. There were so many different people who you could tell didn't know each other, you know, just like they came all from over the all over the place to one spot back to campus to remember remember their friends and family or like their sons and daughters and they were able to bond and you know support each other through that and even if their the parents didn't go to MSU they feel the community and they feel the bond that we have mm-hmm. throughout the Spartan community and kind of let themselves live through their students who aren't able to continue on and I think that was really beautiful and I feel like a lot of those people had a more positive outlook and just like wanted to remember their loved ones, which was really beautiful. Yeah. Can you tell us the name of the organization for people who would want to learn more? The name of the organization is the Mid-Michigan Spartans and they have volunteer opportunities on their website, which I think is midmichiganspartans.com. And so if you go there, then you can see opportunities to donate or volunteer or anything like that. All right. Yeah, for sure. All right, Reese. So kind of similarly for what we did with Tiana, can you tell me about your story? Kind of what was it? And then talk me through like the key issues and discoveries that you found. So my editor was kind of pushing on me to come up with a story because it was the beginning of the semester and we didn't really have anything yet because we all just came back to school. Mm -hmm. And so he's pushing on me. And it was my first story ever for Echo, so I was picking something easy. I was like, fall colors. And he was like, that's not interesting enough. Like, everybody writes about fall colors. Um, So I was like, okay, let's do like a little climate change twist and see if climate change is really affecting fall colors and things like that. So I interviewed this guy from, I think, the Wisconsin DNR. His name was like Bradley Hutnick. And he explained fall colors to me, just the basic process of it. But he didn't really have anything to add about the climate change portion. He just kind of explained mm-hmm. to me why the trees change colors and why there's different colors, things like that. It kind of depends on the tree type. And there's different levels, variations of the components in there and the leaves that cause them to change colors and so he kind of explained that to me and then we talked a little bit about like, stressors that might change the intensity of the color so if there's like a drought or a flood we talked about that but that didn't really answer my question about climate change so I had to reach out to other places I landed on this professor Howard Neufeld he was like the coolest person ever he basically his whole life is dedicated to climate change and leaves he does this like private study thing and so he was able to kind of explain that process with me which was really cool and he actually runs his own study just on his own time but mm-hmm. he has been able to track like how the differences are for the past 20 years. So he literally like take, like keeps track of when he first sees color change and when it's completely done. And so he had a whole statistics table of variations there. So he was kind of tell, able to tell me how mm-hmm. the differences are there. But then my editor, Dave Polson, was like, you need more. So I was able to find a study to back up that as well. So it was a study based on the the trees like traveling. So a lot of them are having a shift due to weather, climate change related weather. So if there's a lot of rain and these trees aren't used to a lot of rain, they're used to less rain, they're either shifting northward or westward. So eventually that's going to lead to a a different color scheme, I guess, in the fall. So in Michigan, I feel like we're really used to a lot of like reds and oranges. If you go down down south, it's more yellowy, but we're, we're beginning to have a shift of more yellow leaves coming up our way because... It, it's either a drought or they're having a lot of flooding down south. So all the trees are slowly coming our way, which is really cool. And then lastly, I was kind of able to tie the story into a timeline of when the fall color is going to be best to view in the Great Lakes region, just to kind of tie it all up there. I also spoke with some tourist people and they were kind of able to talk to me about the like fall color tourist 
industry there and how that plays into it. So yeah, I was able to put a timeline in there about when it's best to view in like all of the Great Lakes states. Can you describe what you learned about how the weather patterns are changing the leaves and kind of what it means for like the environment and leaf watchers? Yeah, um, leaf peepers they called. But from my understanding is that when the leaves or the trees, I guess not the leaves, the trees get like stressed out. Say there's like a bunch of rain or something and they're not used to it. That's not their normal environment. They'll get really stressed out. And I guess that leads to like a stress like showing. I don't know what to call it, but like either the leaves will completely be a different color than they typically are. There'll be a different pigment or something. So sometimes they'll they'll be really, really bright or they'll be like really, really dull. It really depends on the tree type or they'll just drop their leaves like all together. And so it really depends on the tree type. That's what uh, Dr. Newfield was talking about a lot. So it's basically it's just meaning that there's going to be variation in the colors themselves. They're not going to look the same. It might mean that they start two weeks sooner, two weeks later. But scientists really aren't able to predict what those are going to be because there's so many different tree types, mm-hmm. so much different variation with that. And then plus we're having these droughts and then these floods, so they can't really even predict that. So just to clarify, we're losing all the trees coming up together with their full yes, foliage. Yeah. And so, now it's dependent on how well the species are doing to the specific climate changes that we're yeah, experiencing. Yeah, so he said something about certain ones being able to react better so they'll continue normal but other trees aren't used to like drought so they'll drop them all together and there's different variations there and then again there was that shift I was talking about earlier where we're going to get a ton more yellow leaves which I think is horrible news I love the reds and the oranges there but they're all different and they all respond differently to those climate disasters. Okay, yeah. So your story mentions tree migration. Can you explain what this is to people who might not know? So that's what I'm talking about when I say the westward shifts. But basically, it goes back to like the strong survive or whatever, um, natural selection. Say there's like a storm or there's a bunch of storms and it rains a ton, but this tree is not used to that. They're used to just whatever typical type of rainfall they have in that region. They're going to drop their seeds just where they normally go or whatever, and then they're not going to survive with all that rainfall. So then uh, we're going to see maybe the seeds that get blown further away with the wind, say they get blown like west where there's less rain and there it's a better environment for them to live in. Um, they're going to grow there. And so then you're going to slowly start seeing that migration or they might blow north, they might blow east, south, whatever, but it's just going to, they're going to find a better spot for them to grow in. And that's kind of where we see that shift. And then that tree grows, they drop more seeds, they fly wherever they, or they get blown by the wind and they land where they're going to survive. And that's kind of where you're seeing that shift. And then also the trees that aren't doing so well, are going to start suffering. They're going to start dying. I did ask about how it's going to affect the ecosystem and nobody was really able to give me a clear answer, except that like they don't belong there. So it's going to be like interesting to see what happens. Nobody really knows what's going to happen. They, it's too soon, I guess, to be able yeah. to predict a lot of those things, which is honestly terrible news. Like, I'd like to know answers, like, now. <laughs> um, but, yeah, they just said that that's going to be interesting to see. They don't belong there, so you're going to see different, like, an ecosystem. You're going to see how the trees react, I guess, is what he was saying. That's interesting. I never thought of a tree, which is something that's so, to me, permanent and stationary, mm-hmm. being able to migrate. But yeah. you bring in the wind, and it totally makes yeah. sense. <laughs> All right. So your story also mentions the possible economic mm-hmm. impacts of losing kind of this fall beauty. Um, can you go into what that looks like? I think, okay, in my story, Char- I talked to Char- Charlevoix and Traversy. I don't know who I used in the story itself. Um, but they, in both interviews I talked to them, they emphasized the, the influx of visitors it brings into them. So lots of people will go out there for like like a wine 
thing where they go out and then they go see the fall colors and things like that. They go to different wineries and things like that, especially in Traverse City. And that brings in a lot of visitors. So I guess when we're not able to predict when the leaves are changing, you're starting to see people not going up as much because you're not able to predict or they get there and there's not fun colors to look at so they don't really buy into those like leaf tours things like that i know there's like boat tours and things you can take along the shoreline to look at the leaves people aren't booking those because they the leaves aren't a cool color when they thought they were going to be so they bring in a lot of people they stay at hotels that's was emphasized to me a lot the restaurants things like that and obviously it's not as big as a boom as in the summer especially in like traverse city so that's kind of their, their last push and they're kind of losing out on, the, out on that a little bit yeah So I guess overall, why is this something that people should, not to say care about, Mm -hmm. but why is it relevant to their daily lives? Fall is something I look forward to with the pretty leaves and things like that. And I feel like this year we we had a pretty short fall, I guess, where everything was looking nice at the same time, which I think is, it's important to me. I don't know. I like Mm -hmm. when the leaves are pretty. You can go outside and it's fall and it's nice. Um, You get that burst of color. And I think it's important because it's a different result of climate change issues that we're seeing. But this is also something that's affecting us. It's in our region. And you can even see it with your own eyes. I mm-hmm. mean, that was what I was thinking about yeah. when I was reading your story is like we always talk about how things are happening very far away mm-hmm. that are a result of climate change. But that was interesting to know that, that no, there's something right here that's yeah. really a result of climate change. I guess what suggestions do you have for people reporting on a science story? How do you make sure that data that sometimes doesn't even make sense to you makes sense to your readers and that you really know what you're talking about. And Tiana, if you have anything to add. So when I get to a study, I always read the like first thing at the top. I don't remember what it's called. There's always like a little summary situation at the top where it kind of dumbs it down. Um, and I know that there are um, certain studies you can put into websites and I don't know what they're called or anything, but you can like put the study in there and it'll literally explain it to you like you're a fifth grader, which is like great. So I always do that. I always try and like write down the things that are even relevant to me because half the time these studies are like, they're nonsense to me, I guess. And they're not relevant to my story. There's only like a, usually a small portion that's relevant. And so I'll go in, I'll write things down that might be interesting. That's helpful as well. I've also um, contacted the researchers directly and I'll just be like, can you do an air- interview with me and explain like what you're even talking about? Mm-hmm. Um, so I always contact the researchers themselves, which is really um, important to do because they're kind of able to explain it better. All right. So as we're nearing the end of our show today, um, I have one final question for the two of you guys. Basically, do you guys have any advice for any student reporters that might be listening? Be more confident in yourself than you think you should be. Like I said, I always tell myself like, oh, I'm not a writer really. But then when I give my script to my professor for editing, he's like, this is really good. There's parts of this that are really good. And I think that self-doubt is something, at least I can't really speak to the writing side or like Mm -hmm. the press side, but for broadcast and when you want to work in TV, it's you're the face and Mm -hmm. you're the person that if something goes wrong, like they're going to be looking to you and saying, you know, you're the reason. So that can be a reason for a lot of doubt and, you know, hesitance in your story or in your reporting. But I would definitely let yourself make mistakes, especially as a student. Um, My professor is always saying that it's best to make the mistakes now than after you graduate and Mm -hmm. you're actually on real TV versus this is just for your own education to watch yourself and learn from the things you're doing. And one other thing that I would say uh, is a great piece of advice for a student journalist is try to find your way to create your own type of persona, I would say, for lack of a better word. You know, like find your own voice. I would say fake it till you make it because I promise you I have no idea what I'm doing. Like, right, I just... 
pretend I know what I'm talking about. When I go to these interviews, they're they know so much more than me and they're so much more professional and they're actually like researchers in their field and they mm-hmm. actually are accomplished and I'm just sitting here like, uh, <laughs> but you just fake it. They can't really tell the difference, I don't think, uh, and just pretend and eventually I think you'll figure it out, I hope. I've learned there's a lot of value in your own silence because people just tend to yeah, feel it just, with yeah, them talking. talking. That's also how you get a lot of the important background information when you go back in and look. You're like, oh, okay, you explaining it this way actually really helped. Now I know what I'm looking at. Thank you so much for doing that. That's the scariest thing too, like the silence. Like it's so real that if you feel like you're not getting enough from someone, just don't say anything and they will naturally yeah, just stare blankly. <laughs> but how do you deal with the fact that you don't want the silence and you just want to ask another question? All right, guys. So where can people find your work if they're interested in learning more about you? All right. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for um, taking time out of your day to come on here. It's been really great. Thank yeah. you for having us. Thank you. This is really cool. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and that's it for our show. Thank you to our station manager, Delaney Rogers, general manager, Jeremy Whiting, and program director, McKenna Lowndes. And as always, thank you to you, our listeners. If you're interested in going back and listening to our archive of stories, feel free to check out our website at impact89fm.org. And of course, if you're interested in what's going on next week, you can tune back in at 1030 and we'll see you back here. You've been listening to The Reporter Roundtable.